You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 134 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. If you are a regular listener to this podcast, you know that I often, especially recently, have been asking most of my guests what they think about the afterlife. Because this question fascinates me greatly. What happens when we die? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Is there a god? Does it go black? Who knows? And in today's episode we are going to focus on this topic completely. My guest is philosopher, psychologist, physician and author Dr. Raymond Moody. And for those who don't know, Dr. Moody is the leading authority on the near-death experience, which is a phrase he coined in the late 70s. So thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm just delighted. Could you uh, tell the listeners a bit about who you are and, and what you've been doing your whole life almost? Well, I guess, number one, I'm a father of four and a grandfather of one, and I'm just very, have a wonderful wife, and I live in um, uh, Alabama, right outside of um, Atlanta, Georgia. And, and I, in terms of my profession, I first got a PhD in philosophy from the University of Virginia, and I was interested in um, logic and philosophy of language and ancient Greek philosophy. And um, then I was a professor of philosophy for three years, and then I went to medical school and got my MD and then went into psychiatry residency and became ultimately a forensic psychiatrist. Um, but during that process, back in 1962, when I was an undergraduate student of philosophy, I read in Plato about what today we call near-death experiences. And since that time, I've had the honor and privilege of uh, interviewing thousands of people from all over the world um, who have been to the brink of death and then had um, extraordinary episodes of transcendent consciousness, which convinced them anyway that what we call death is a transition into some other reality. So um, that is basically my uh, professional work. Most people are maybe familiar with near-death experience, but one time I heard you talk about something called fey. Could you talk a bit about that? Yes, that's an English word. I, um, the primary definition of the word is a um, heightened state of consciousness that portends imminent death. And I worked a lot with terminally ill patients during my medical career and um, was there with many people as they passed away. And um, this is a rather common thing. Anyone who works, for example, in hospice or who works with the terminally ill and dying patients will know about this, that even though the patient may seem to be unconscious for 
weeks and no response, just before they die, they often, um, it's as though they regain consciousness in a very intent way. It's um, really quite startling. Sometimes they go around the bedside and they give a very coherent message to everybody present. And um, this part of is really sounds psychotic, but anybody who who works with the terminal ill will know exactly what I'm talking about. And that is that during the dying process, they seem to light up with a light. It's really quite astonishing when you see this, like a light sort of beams from their eyes and their face. And um, then they just sort of turn over and die. In the United States, this word was very, un, that was well understood up till about the 1920s or 30s. But what happened during that period of time that Americans started dying in hospitals rather than at home as they had done before. So this was part and parcel of just the Norman, normal common sense understanding of the, um, of, of death and dying up to the time that Americans started dying not in, at home but in a hospital and um, it's a quite startling thing to see it my impression when I watched this and was that it's as though the people were um, entering into some other realm of existence and um, I once had a patient came come all, came all the way from Australia to see me because he had been so astonished by this when he saw it with his wife and he said to me he said it was almost as though she already had one foot on the other side so um yeah i think this is a really fascinating phenomenon that needs to be investigated but i think it hasn't had a a very system systematic treatment yet another closely related phenomenon is what i call the swan song phenomenon and I name it that because it, the first case I knew of it was um, described by Plato in his dialogue, The Phaedo, which is about the death of Socrates. And um, the Phaedo is the basis of the Christian theology of the afterlife. Basically, the Christians um, sort of came in and sort of took Plato's notion of the immortality of the soul over and uh, made this their, his ideas in the Phaedo part of their theology of the afterlife. But at the very beginning of this dialogue, Socrates' friends go into the prison because he's going to be executed that day. And so when they come in, the first question they want to ask him is, what's this we hear, Socrates, about you've been writing songs in prison? Well, the backstory of that is that in the other dialogues, Socrates is always portrayed as uh, um, uh, disdaining musicians and music and so on. You might remember that in the um, Republic, which is his description of the ideal state, he says, poets are liars, he says, and we won't allow poets into our ideal society. So the point of this scene in the early in the Phaedo is that um, I'm assuming that it's in, in 
Plato and Socrates' friend's mind that here's this man all his life, he's been making fun of musicians, but now in the last few days of his life, he's he's fancying himself a songwriter. So the thought was that maybe he's slipping under the stress. <clears throat> but Socrates goes on to say, no, no, he says, I'm doing this in obedience to dreams and visions, which uh, inspire me to pursue music. And he goes on to make an analogy with the Greek folk belief that just before swans die, they sing the most beautiful songs of all. And so I, I recalled that from the age of 18 when I first read that in Plato and was very impressed. Well, that was in 1962. If you fast forward to 1974, I was doing my surgery training in medical school, and I walked in on a woman who um, was having a cardiac arrest, and I was there with my two attendings, and we walked in, and as she was dying, she was reciting poetry. Well, subsequent to that time, I just heard from I suppose now hundreds of people over the years who have uh, described the same phenomenon that just before their loved ones die, they either sing or recite poetry or sometimes make up poetry on the spot. And uh, I think this is one of those really many fascinating enigmas about the dying process that um, we haven't really investigated as we should. And one of the most recent modern famous examples of Faye, I guess, is I read this account of when Steve Jobs died. He said his last words were wow three times. So he must have seen something or felt something. Yes. And um, it, it it attained attention because of Steve um, Jobs' um, popularity. And at the same time, it is it wasn't unusual. I mean, it's just anyone who deals with the terminally ill would have many cases of that. And it's also interesting that when he died, um, um, Jobs used a figure of speech, which is very interesting. Um, and the figure of speech is called epizuxis, and it is immediate, emphatic repetition of one or two words. And um, it is a very powerful figure of speech. And the Early Christian church, um, epizuxis was used as a sort of means to get one into an uh, ecstatic state or an altered state of consciousness. And uh, the way they did it, they would repeat the name of Jesus, 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 over and over and over until they achieved an ecstatic state. And um, uh, Epizuxis is often used in advertising, for example, because it gets people's attention and uh, used in poetry and so on. And I just find it really interesting that there, as in his closing moments of life, he used an epizuxis and he repeated the same two words three times. So that's, um, um, I think, a very uh, suggestive and interesting phenomenon. Most accounts I've read about near-death experiences have happened in the in the western part of the world. So they've always had a f kind of a Christian tone to them. 
But have you ever studied any near-death experiences that happened in in a Muslim world or in a other religion than Christianity? Do they report like Allah or Buddha and, and these things? Well, yes, I have actually been around all the world, actually. I've been to China and uh, Japan and um, India and all over Eastern and Western Europe and down into South America and uh, Australia. Uh, I've been to Russia. Um, Everywhere I go, I hear these things from people. And um, especially when I went to India, I was kind of expecting to hear something very different. And... um, So I had my ears tuned to hear what the variations would be. But I was really quite startled when I heard the same things from people in India than I do than I did from European and American patients. And um, this talking about the perception of leaving the body and going through a passageway into a light. Um, It's when you go around the world, um, you find that people say the same thing, but they may put different explanatory terms on it. For example, um, in the United States, um, people generally describe that light, they identify it as Christ, for example, or Jesus, or uh, um, uh, um, uh, if Jews will say um, a light or uh, an angel, right? Um, but when I go to the other parts of the world, there's that same description of the light, but people just bring different explanatory labels to it. And But this is within the context that the most common thing that people say um, about their near-death experiences is that however articulate they may be or um, however many languages they speak, that... Um, there are simply no words to describe this, um, that people say that it is ineffable or indescribable. And so it makes sense to me that people, given the indescribability of it, would say, as they often do, that, um, that, it, that even though there are no equivalence in their language, they are forced to borrow the terms from their own religious background or whatever, but it was it is usually within the proviso or the qualification that the words aren't literal in their meaning. The scientific community has issues with accepting near-death experience or an afterlife, and usually the criticism of you and others who, who do re- similar research, is that it's mainly based on anecdotal evidence. But, but uh, I mean, how can you else have a near-death experience unless it's a direct experience? So is it, how, how could you do it in the scientific method? I mean, it would be very difficult. Thank <laughs> you for that question, because that brings to light many, many assumptions that we make in our Western way of thinking these days that are precisely why Uh, why advances on this are held back. Because first of all, um, I and as I have said in my books and throughout my career, anybody who tells you that, that near-death experiences are, quote, scientific evidence, unquote, 
of life after death simply doesn't know what they're talking about because, um, you know, it um, life after death is still a philosophical question. It's not yet a scientific question because there's no way to identify it either way. Um, secondly, um, people who use that phrase anecdotal evidence are talking nonsense. This phrase anecdotal in, um, evidence it makes no sense at all. It conveys no thought to the mind. And um, what they should say is that invariably when we are thinking about investigating these near-death experiences, that there is always a narrative involved, that you can't get around having a narrative aspect of it. And this was first pointed, pointed out very beautifully by Plato in his Phaedo, who said that whenever you look at the question of life after death from a rational point of view, that there is uh, there has always got to be a story to it. And he said the reason is that the notion itself of an afterlife is so obscure that we have to have some sort of narrative line just to uh, get the conversation about it started. But then he went on to say that even if you had a million stories or narratives, that that wouldn't add up to a proof of an afterlife. What you need in addition Plato said, is some set of concepts that enable you to proceed from the, from the narratives to the statement that there is life after death. And um, the, in the late 19th century, when the afterlife question sort of reemerged into Western thought, uh, people, rather than holding back and thinking, the first question needed to be, what sort of methodology is apropos or, or relevant to the investigation of the question of life after death? And these people just re leaped immediately with no forethought at all to the, they went from the uh, question of what modality should we use to say, oh, it must be scientific. Well, that's one of the great difficulties in our Western society now, is that we ignore that there are other means of rational inquiry than um, science. And as I say, I think the, um, the question of afterlife still belongs in the philosophical, uh, in the philosophy department, not in the science department yet. And so within that context, I think that the operative problem here is what philosophers call the mind-body problem. Now, neurophysiologists, for example, or doctors, uh, just leap to the assumption that um, they, they, they give one particular answer to the mind-body problem. In philosophy, there are numerous various possibilities with respect to the mind-body relationship. But what happens is that people come into the um, you know, into medicine or whatever from a purely natural science background and um, that they don't um, think of the complications of this, that, that it's not yet a verifiable uh, scientific problem. And um, 
what the neurophysiologists make, they go ahead and make a, uh, in their minds, they have solved the mind-body problem, but they haven't. And what they subscribe to is a philosophical theory called epiphenomenalism, which is the statement that there is no independent reality to consciousness, but rather what we experience as consciousness is a secondary, unreal byproduct of what they regard as the primary reality, which is the material substance of the brain and the electrochemical reactions in it. And many of them leap to this uh, statement, which you hear so often is that, oh, these people with the near-death experience is just the chemistry of the brain, is what they tell us, that due to the oxygen flow cut off to the brain during the resuscitation process, this generates a hallucinatory phenomenon, which is reported by the, by the uh, patient as a near-death experience. The difficulty with that is that even beyond the philosophical difficulty, which is that there's no way to prove the epiphenomenalist thesis, but that um, uh, another difficulty is that it is very common for bystanders at the death of someone else who are not themselves or ill or injured, that when the person in the bed dies, it's very common for the bystanders to feel that they empathically co-live the dying experience of the person who is dying. And um, all of these things that we think of in terms of the near-death ex experience, like leaving the... Um, leaving one's body and seeing a light and uh, all of these things are also commonly reported by the bystanders. They say, for example, that when grandma died, I myself got out of my body and I accompanied her part way toward this light and many other cases of that. So uh, the point is that it's, it's ridiculous to say that the cause of the near-death experience is... Um, oxygen cut off to the brain when people who are standing by who are not ill or injured or new in good health um, have these same things. There's millions of people dying every day around the clock and uh, so there must be a lot of people having these kinds of experiences seeing people uh, dying uh, naturally. And so how come it's still almost like it feels like it's still underground or some secret? Is it that people are ashamed of any so-called paranormal experiences or, or what do you think? Well, I think that it's probably multifactorial. There's probably many reasons. And one is this is a very personal experience. And um, so, you know, I mean, people are... They think that the doctor or nurse or somebody else may think that they've lost their mind or or whatever. But um, I think there's a lot of, of a lot of problems uh, why this is not brought to um, more to public attention. And um, one thing that's happening now is that with the rapid advance of techniques of cardiopulmonary resuscitation, we're seeing a lot more cases of this. And so it, there, a practical necessity now has risen on the part of physicians um, to have some idea of what to say to a patient who says this. And 
you might be interested to know that the University of Missouri Press has just published an excellent compendium of articles on near-death experiences by physicians who have had them or who have studied them in their own patients. And this book is called um, The Science of Near-Death Experiences by the uh, University of Missouri Press, and it's edited by John Hagen, um, who is a, a medical doctor in, in um, Kansas or Missouri. And so um, the, this book, I think, is a sort of landmark because it's now out in the um, in the scientific literature of medicine, and I think uh, people will just have to take account of this because really it's nothing new. Um, Plato and Democritus argued about near-death experiences just as people to do today. Plato knew about these things, and he took it seriously, and he took it as indicator of an afterlife. Meanwhile, his rough contemporary, the Democritus, who was the the founder of the atomic theory, um, um, it surveyed the same information, but what he said was that even when somebody seems to be dead, there's residual biological activity in the body. And as Democritus said, um, there is no such thing as a moment of death. Now, that debate has been going on continuously for 2,300 years. I think what we, the lesson we should take from that is that we need some new way of thinking about this and investigating this. And I, that is what's happening. It's, um, we've reached a point where we realize that we need some new logical principles to, to think about issues like this. Have you had any research done or studies done with communities who are not living the modern world, like indigenous cultures, uh, maybe the, or poor people who are dying at home more, uh, if there's a, a big difference? Well, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's um, it, There's so many complicating factors with this. Um, one is, for example, in hospitals, when there have been studies done um, by surveys or questionnaires, the percentage of people who have a cardiac arrest, say, with, uh, um, who have a near-death experience is down about 20%. However, various, uh, very experienced cardiologists, um, Dr. Bender, I believe his name was, in Hamburg, for example, at the St. Vincent, St. Vincent's um, Cardiology Hospital, or um, uh, Fred Schoonmaker, a cardiologist in Colorado, um, th that their estimate of this is much higher. And it makes a certain amount of sense that if a doctor sits down with the patient and says, you know, I understand you came close and what were your remembrances, the patient might be more likely to talk rather than if they just receive a questionnaire, they may be suspicious about the purpose of the questionnaire. But I don't know. I don't know. Those are just thoughts. But I am impressed that... Um, that 
very experienced cardiologists who have been in the field for a very long period of time tend to estimate the percentage of people who have this experience as higher than comes off in the um, questionnaire type studies. So what is the general, if you can have a general uh, description of, of what happens after you die? Yeah, well, um, there are about 15 or so common elements of these experiences. And um, one person may have one or two or three of these or five or six or seven or um, 10 or 12. Or some people will have the entire um, panel of 15 elements. And it seems to correlate um how long they were in the cardiac arrest um, situation. For example, people with very lengthy cardiac arrest will be much more likely to tell you this entire picture, whereas people with only a momentary cardiac arrest may tell you three or four of these things. But basically what patients tell us all over the world is that at the point where their heart stops beating, They tell us it seems to them that their consciousness leaves their body and they watch from above, typically right below the ceiling of the operating room or whatever. They see their own physical bodies down below and they enter into a state of consciousness that's so profound that no matter how many languages they speak, as I mentioned earlier, they say there are no words for, for this. But nonetheless, they tend to give a similar um, description, which is going through a passageway of some sort uh, into a bright light where they feel comfort and peace and love. In that light, they say that relatives or friends of theirs who have already passed away seem to be there almost in the role of a greeting committee to um, to help them through this transition. Um, they say that they undergo panoramic memory in which All of the events of their lives are displayed around them in a holographic panorama in which they they review literally every event of their lives. Um, at some point, they have to come back. Some people are told they have to go, come back. They have no choice. Other people are given a choice and um, saying that they can either stay in the experience they're having then or go back to the life they've been leading, not so, too surprisingly, all the ones that I've talked with who have given that choice chose to come back. And the most common reason they give is that they have young children left to raise, or it's always on behalf of someone else. They say for themselves, they would rather have stayed in that light, but they chose to come back because to help someone else, some other loved one. And Have there been any indication that there is this concept of reincarnation, that if you don't come back, you will come back later anyway? Well, um, yes. Sometimes people with near-death experiences will say that some aspect of what they experience indicated to them that there is reincarnation. Um And I find it very interesting. Um, my first few years I was doing my study, I was really living in the southern part of the United States. Um, and um, 
even among people, for example, who were Southern Baptists, who had no exposure to the notion of reincarnation, would would have this, uh, would report this aspect of it. Um, you know, one interesting thing about the whole notion of, of uh, reincarnation in the West is that there seems to be this popular myth to the effect that reincarnation was not uh, innate to the West, but rather that it was brought into the Western world in the 19th century through gurus from India and such. And that's just blatantly incorrect. As a matter of fact, anybody who wants to study the formation of, of um, Western thought with the ancient Greece, in ancient Greece will um, know that, for example, Pythagoras was a reincarnationist who claimed to remember eight of his past lives. Um, Plato, of course, is uh, has some uh, very strong things to say about reincarnation in several of his dialogues. So um, this is an occasional element of uh, near-death experiences, yes. Do you think that um, we should spend time considering the afterlife? Maybe it's like, you know... When you go to a concert these days, you use your iPhone to film it instead of watching the concert. Like maybe we're spending too much thought and time on the afterlife instead of experiencing this life. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. Um, I am not religious myself. I, um, um, my, my dad was not into uh, religious religion, so... The benefit for that, uh, for me of that, was that when I was a kid, um, we lived in a heavily Christian town, and my, uh, but my dad, in the first few years he lived there, was, you know, not, you know, it was, let's put it this way, it's the, there wasn't as much overjoyed reception of him, but the Jewish physicians in town, um, were very welcoming to him. So when I was a kid, I had the wonderful treat of most of our friends were Jewish, and that was the little bit of knowledge or thoughts that I absorbed on that when I was a kid was that um, in Judaism, the afterlife is not stressed. It's like the whole point is to, just as you were saying, is while you're here to pay attention to this life here and to try to be kind to people. And um, so that is still my attitude. I can um, empathize with that position that maybe um, um, just let the afterlife wait till the afterlife. Um, but personally, the way I got interested in this, you see, is um, because it's such a big factor in the development of Western philosophy with the ancient Greeks. So that was my point of entree. And then when I began to hear these experiences from contemporary Americans, it was impressive to me that the same things that the ancient Greeks wrote about were, were a factor in modern-day America. So that's how I got into this. But I sort of agree with that attitude that, yeah, it's like, while you're here, just try to pay attention to this. And, uh, yeah. But the ancient Greeks, did somebody there have direct ex uh, experience with near-death experience? Yes, absolutely. Uh, for example, in um, the classic account is in the last 
uh, section of Plato's Republic where he describes the um, the near-death vision of Ur, who was a warrior, who was believed dead on the battlefield but spontaneously revived and told such an experience. And there are others as well. Um, and uh, W.K.C. Guthrie, in my opinion, is is the wrote the best history of Greek philosophy. It's published by um, Cambridge University Press, and it's entitled um, History of Greek Philosophy. And, and the second volume of that, in the chapter on Democritus, um, he discusses this, uh, what the Greeks call anabosis, or the uh, resuscitation of the apparent dead. And um, this was a major formative factor in the origin of Western thought. Has there been any reports of uh, an, a nightmarish or fearful feeling when after they die, or, or do they al always go into this peaceful, blissful state? There are cases of unpleasant or uh, hellish near-death experiences. The difficulty in studying them is that they are very rare compared to the positive um, experiences. And in 1979, I think, it was the Gallup poll became interested in this phenomenon. And they did a study of it, and they found that there was only a minute fraction of the uh, cases were negative. And what that means is that it's just a lot more difficult to study them because they're so few and far between. However, um, that doesn't mean that they're not important. It's just that it's more difficult to, do, to study them. Also, the negative ones seem to be much more varied than the positive ones. That is, if you look at a positive, positive ones, they sort of... Um, uh, look very similar, but the negative ones, there's quite a deal of variation of them. And it kind of reminds me of, um, you know, Tolstoy said one time, he said, um, all happy families are alike, but every unhappy family is tormented in its own particular way. And maybe it's similar with these near-death experiences, that the negative ones are kind of all over the place, whereas the positive ones have more of a um, coherence and homogeneity. Do you think it's due to the fact that that person had a more difficult time to let go? or You know, I just don't know. I don't know. In my uh, forensic career, obviously, I was dealing with a, on a daily basis with homicide detectives. And which is really one of the most interesting professions of, of very, very brilliant, analytically-minded people. And um, a homicide detective uh, was shot in the head. A homicide detective that I knew was shot in the head, and he had a, um, a negative near-death experience. And I talked with him about it, and this man is just super nice. I mean, just a really good soul. I mean, I, you know, it certainly didn't strike me that he was having that experience because he was a bad guy, because I know him very well and knew that he's really a terrific guy. So, But I don't know. This is, well, as I said, it's hard to make inferences when there are so 
few cases, and when those cases are so dispersed. How do you feel yourself about, about the, the afterlife? Do you have a, a belief or a, a knowing, or, or are you just, uh, you don't know? Well, William James, he was one of our American philosophers and psychiatrists about a hundred years ago, and um, William James made this wonderful observation in his book, um, Varieties of Religious Experience. He said that if you are exposed to a religion when you are a kid, you may persist in it, you may reject it. But either way, he said, it's for you a live option. It's at least something you can think about. On the other hand, he said, if you're not exposed to these ideas when you're a young kid, then it never really is a live option for you. And I kind of understand that point of view. Um, when I was 12 years old, my dad, for some reason, started dragging us to this Presbyterian church. By then, <clears throat> I had already been an astronomy uh, buff for years, and I quickly realized that this, this church thing was going nowhere. And fortunately, I suppose my dad woke up out of, out of this, whatever it was, after three weeks. So I only had to endure three weeks of it when I was a kid. And, and thank God for that. <laughs> and um, so um, the afterlife is still very counterintuitive to me. These, these accounts of near-death experiences are absolutely fascinating and they're very inspiring. But the trouble is that Western logic has no way to put these things together. And that's the difficulty because my specialty in philosophy was logic. And so I don't really know how to answer your, to your question except to say that I've reached the point with this, I honestly don't know what to say. Because I have heard so many things from my medical colleagues who have had near-death experiences. And I trust their medical judgment entirely and their unanimous judgment about their own near-death experiences was that this is a reality. Uh, several years ago, I was giving a lecture and a, on near-death experiences. And after my lecture, this very nice surgeon came up. And you could tell that he was haunted by the look in his eyes. You could tell he had been through something that had really changed him. So he led me into the back corner of this auditorium. And so what he told me was that some time before, he had been doing an elective procedure on a fairly young man who was in overall good health. This wasn't a serious surgery. It was elective. So he said there was no thought that anything bad might happen, but in the event, the man had a cardiac arrest on the table and the doctor was unable to revive him. So he told me he was just beside himself. He was so upset and, you know, like, what happened? And how, what am I going to say to the family and so on? When all of a sudden the operating room doors flew open and a woman came in 
raving at the top of her voice. And you know, when you're under stress, it's hard to make out what somebody else is saying anyway. So he said he literally had to stare into her face to think, like, what is this woman saying? And he realized she was saying, my husband is not dead. And she said, I was out in the waiting area, and my husband came to me, and he said, you think he's dead, and that I should come in here and tell you that he's not dead. So the surgeon told me he was so astonished that he doesn't even remember resuming the resuscitation. He went on, on automatic. And he said, sure enough, after a while, the patient's heart started beating again, and he was there in the recovery room when the man regained consciousness. And he said the first thing the man said to him was, I was out of my body up there looking at you. I could tell you thought I was dead. I kept trying to tell you I wasn't dead. So I went out into the waiting room to tell, trying to tell my wife to come in here and tell you I'm not dead. And I've heard other, just that's just one account of many. I give up. I mean, I just think, if you ask me what I think, I do want to preface this by saying, this is just my impression I've gotten from, you know, 50-something years now of looking into this. But, and so I'm, not making a conclusion that I suggest that any other person make. I'm not trying to persuade anybody. But if you're asking me my personal impression after all of this, I've just sort of recently had to say, well, yeah, yeah, it seems to be. And that is so startling to me because, um, you know, this world is confusing enough. I mean, holy mackerel, this incomprehensible world we're in, and it's kind of jarring to realize that, oh, my gosh, you mean there's another layer of complication, at least one other layer of complication on top of this amazing, complicated thing we're already in. So, I mean, I guess I have to say in answer to your question, I'm beginning to think, yeah, it's true. But I, it's certainly not an opinion that I would want to try to persuade anybody else of that's that's just where i've come to on this that's why i asked about if you'd done any research on indigenous cultures before because i read read a bit about indigenous cultures and and they have a more uh, compared to the western society a more uh, relaxed uh, relationship with death whereas you know some some even have a funeral when when children are born and a party when they when you die is the opposite and uh, and they also view the afterlife as just another another place yeah yes and uh, I forgot that part of your question about the indigenous cultures um, I have um, you know interviewed people from all over the world but not many people nobody that I can think of from these kinds of um, uh, preliterate cultures you're describing, but I do know that some have. Um, there was an article back in the 1930s by a famous anthropologist named um, David Hallowell, who studied the Salto Indians of of Canada, and he did a wonderful article about the among the Salto. There was a uh, they were interested in these near-death experiences, and they transmitted them on in their oral culture. 
and he gathered quite a bit of these, and they are very similar. It talks about, you know, going down a pathway into a light and so on. So, yeah, yeah, there there is some work done, but as you're indicating there, as many indigenous cultures have a very different uh, take on death than we do in the um, West, generally. But having spent so much time studying these things, are you yourself more relaxed about your imminent death uh, in the future? Or or are you also worried or uh, <laughs> looking forward? Yeah, I am not afraid of death. Um, I'm 73 years old now. Um, but there's another factor here. I first heard these near-death experiences and when I was 18 years old was when I learned about this and I've studied it ever since then. And during that period of time, a lot of other things have happened in my life, including just going through the normal life development. So it's very difficult you to, to separate out my developmental process just from aging from my work. So uh, many people I know at my age range have the same attitude toward death that I do, that uh, it, a really nice thing about being 73 is you know exactly why you're here. It's like I have two wonderful grown sons and a wonderful grandson, and they are on their own. They're doing well. Um, my, my grandson has his parents, but I also have two wonderful adopted ones um, uh, who are 19 and 16, and uh, I am here for them. I want to be around, you know, until they get to the point where they can fly out of the nest. But otherwise, I mean, I'm just, I certainly don't want to be caught in that trap where I see so many geriatric patients are where surrounded by tubes and in a wheelchair and so on. Because it's very important for me to get out and do my exercise every day. I've been a walker all my life. So, you know, I just don't, I am... I am happy at any time to, you know, um, pass on. As ideally, like I said, I would love to have some more time to get my um, two teenagers on the route. But uh, yeah, I'm just I'm not afraid of death. But I don't know whether that attitude is necessarily a product of my research on near death experiences. It could equally be a product of my uh, just life development. What I always think is fascinating is you hear this all the time, especially if uh, there's been a couple who's been together for a long time. If one dies, the other one dies very close uh, to the first one, even though that person wasn't that sick or anything. Uh, I always think that's very fascinating. It's just grief is a very powerful thing. And especially in the kind of circumstance you're describing where people have been together for decades, it's just, it's just very common for one of them to die and then the other one follows just very shortly. That happened in my family. My mother died. She was in good health when my dad died, but just she went downhill rapidly and died not too long after. In that same year that it happened to my parents, two of my best friends who were my age both their both sets of their parents died in that same order. So this is something very um never gonna die because the adrenaline 
closes your veins. Oh, okay. And it enables for the blood flow, so you die. Oh, okay. My 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 um, daughter here, who's uh, sixteen, was putting her input into that question. Yeah, my daughter and I have a very close relationship, so she likes to comment on on my um, perceptions and so on. Do you have any place where people can read your books or a website? Uh, wh- where can people uh, locate your stuff? Yes, my website is called lifeafterlife.com. Because you've written quite a few books. Yes, I have. I uh, My book, that's the latest one, which I'm very proud of, is published not yet in the United States, but it's published in France by Trey Daniel, uh, Trey Daniel Publisher. And uh, my work in philosophy of language was I was very interested in what makes language unintelligible or nonsensical. So that's what my new book is about. So thanks a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast and talk about these things. Thank you very much for the invitation. I really uh, thank you. Go to lifeafterlife.com to check out Dr. Moody's work. I have started a Patreon page for those of you who want to support this podcast. On Patreon, I will give the patrons access to additional content like photos, deleted episodes, and other material. And so far, I have zero patrons. Who will be a trailblazer and become the first patron? And you know, um, why not pay a dollar a show? Come on, I've got kids to feed. And naturally, I will give shout-outs to anyone who joins. But dear friends, of course you don't have to. I appreciate all listeners regardless. And uh, I also find it a bit fun to create some extra material that is not available anywhere else. So go to patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. Or click the Patreon link on the naturalbornalchemist.com website. And finally, regarding near-death experience. We will all have them eventually. So it's very near to us all, really. That's why maybe it's called a near-death experience. Because that's what life really is. And uh, when we die, it will be an adventure. But I don't need to uh, find out now, you know. I have patience to wait. Still, it is hard to wait for the curious like I am. That is why we are going to listen to the song Hard to Wait by the band Ihi. The song is from the aptly titled album Whatever Will Happen. And you can check out more of Ihi's music at ihi.bandcamp.com. And Ihi is spelled I-J-I, but the URL is actually ijiijij.bandcamp.com and you'll find that link in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com as well so become a patron like the facebook page follow the podcast on twitter or uh, just send a donation or whatever whatever it takes to avoid adverts because i don't feel like selling coca-cola And if you don't do any of that, if you just listen, 
when the episodes come out. That is fine too. But it would be nice to have a nice review on iTunes. Uh, why not? Freedom is in the mind. Seasons of hysteria Songs we know and some we don't Later spoke the tired soul So many maybes on the radio these days But that's just me In the center of the dream Floating reminders of the ones I love to be with Late at night Here they go, they go, they go, they go Because it's hard, 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 hard To wait, Hard, 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 hard to wait for good love. 